Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. My mission is simple to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. If you want to make friends, I'm just trying to make a little money. My job is not just to entertain, but to try to explain what the heck is going on. So call me at 1-800-743-CMC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Sometimes, very rarely, but sometimes, we have no idea how to value a stock. It just eludes us beyond our ken. There are no comparisons, no analogies, no traditional benchmarks. And I think it's safe to say NVIDIA now has that kind of stock. We all just draw blanks as it defies every expectation and breaks through every boundary. NVIDIA's reporting tomorrow night, and the anticipation is as great as I've ever seen. By the way, it helps send the stock down 4% today. It's playing havoc with the entire tech sector. Yes, today. The averages were not so hot. Dow dipping 64 points. S&P losing 0.6%. The tech-heavy Nasdaq wilting down 0.92%. Within that negativity, though, we had some important leaders like Walmart surging 3%. We got CEO Doug McMillan on the show later to tell us how he put that monster quarter together. In a stunning move of the financial sector, Capital One's buying Discover. Two credit card companies, wow, getting together, or at least trying to get together, because I think there'll be a lot of antitrust scrutiny. But after the bell... We had a calamitous quarter for one of my favorite companies, Palo Alto. We will have CEO Nikesh Aurora on later in the show to put that severe disappointment into some sort of context. Sell, sell, sell. Yet the only stuff people seem to be caring about at all today is NVIDIA, the semiconductor and software juggernaut that's, notice I said software, that's propelled itself into the trillion-dollar conversation with a market capitalization in the $1.7 trillion region, thanks to the strength of its artificial intelligence chips. One thing that's true for both stocks and people, everybody has disdain for the nouveau riche, and NVIDIA is as nouveau riche as it gets. The company was worth $573 billion last year, $340 billion in 2021, and just $165 billion in 2020. And that's why there's so much skepticism. It's almost like people feel that wealth creation here smacks of alchemy. Maybe they think of visionary CEO Jensen Wong as someone like Harold Hill, the charismatic con artist, also known as the music man. I think that's absurd. NVIDIA earned $2.50 per share in fiscal 2021, and it's expected to earn $21.47 per share this year. Even as the stock skyrocketed hard, you know it's actually gotten cheaper on an earnings basis because those numbers are growing even faster. And that's the real takeaway. Yep, on the eve of National NVIDIA Day, I want to take the challenge of explaining the stock's valuation by providing the relevant comparisons that can justify that, that seemingly lofty valuation. 
Remember, I always say own NVIDIA, don't trade it. And that's doubly true if the stock gets slammed in response to the quarter, even if it's slammed like, like we're seeing with, with Palo Alto tonight. And yes, I am conscious that the stock could get crushed like Palo Alto Networks, which is an unbelievable performer. Uh, but I think NVIDIA is different. Maybe it's more lasting. What makes you feel that way? Let's talk comparable valuations, or as we call them in the trade, the comps. Now, I want to start with what I have to admit is a layman's comp, one that I'll put my, put my view of Jensen Wong in true perspective. Jensen is the CEO equivalent of Taylor Swift. I'm not joking. I'm dead serious. While Taylor's on her legendary, most lucrative tour of all time, plowing through the worldwide era's extravaganza, what does she do? Well, she's working the whole time on the tortured poets department, which will drop. Always wanted to say that on this show. On April 19th. I mean, talk about an encore. That's actually a pre-core. Taylor Swift is a force, a larger-than-life force that seems incomparable. But that's the whole point. She isn't. There's just no comparison in the entertainment business. But in generative artificial intelligence accelerated computing, there's a perfect comp, the man universally, universally known as Jensen. Although that does put him in a lesser-like category of Madonna or Cher. Every time Jensen Wong blazes through a tour, he's got something else he's working on. He's the tech visionary department. Whatever happens tomorrow, do we really think it's make or break for NVIDIA, up or down, yay or nay? No way. Nobody's about to call a top in Taylor Swift, so why the heck does everyone seem to want to call a top with NVIDIA? Jensen right now is more likely working on the calculations needed to put a person on Mars without crash landing as he solves the dilemma of black ice and self-driving cars or gives robot dogs treats for picking up jello cubes with tremendous ease. Hey, mind you, those are some of his hobbies for this renaissance man. A fabulous entertainer like Taylor Swift, who seems to do it all with ease, who's hardly tortured, albeit a poet, doesn't surprise us with her rise because it's been a long time coming. Well, guess what? Same thing with Jensen. This is NVIDIA's 31st year of existence. It didn't get started in 2021. Now that's torture. They share kinetic energy and brilliance, and neither is anywhere near their pinnacle. When it comes to artificial intelligence, we could be so early that NVIDIA's equivalent of the Eras tour may still be years away. With a string of hits that's the envy of the industry, it's just a different vernacular. Hence why in 2017, I named my rescue mutt NVIDIA, even as he sadly didn't make it to the AI year. Jensen was still working on developing chips for gaming. They were greyhounds, making the rest of the players in the race look like dachshunds. <laughs> the dachshund pentium. Now, I know you can't put a price on Taylor Swift and her Swifties, but I need you to get your head around the idea that there's no anti-hero here. It's not me that's the problem. It's you who might be exhausted, always rooting for Jensen Ma. Now, if entertainment doesn't work for you, let's add another comparison that's a little more pedestrian. Let's add Apple, the creator of the most remarkable device in history, okay, the iPhone. You see, Jensen's been adamant that artificial intelligence represents a whole new computing platform, and it's now having an iPhone moment. That's the phrase he always uses, accelerated computing, generative artificial intelligence, supercomputers that can think better and faster than we can. It's all in there in part because of NVIDIA's assembly it. Oh, and it's not just hardware. If it were just hardware, I believe AMD could be giving this current iteration much more of a run for its money. It's the software that makes it work, the software that allows the devices to learn. All these different systems, the Gemini, the Copilot, the ChatGPT, even what Shatter and Orion from Adobe showed us this morning on Squawk on the Street, that allows you to create without you creating, well, they're all spawn of NVIDIA. Sure, the iPhone is sui generis, but so is NVIDIA's architecture. And to conflate the two comps, do you think that Jensen isn't working on a new iteration that could come out five years from now? One that makes the current H200, the Grace Hopper chips look like, look like the 46? I mean, maybe people are willing to pay $1.7 trillion now for NVIDIA because it might climb to Apple's $2.8 trillion a few years from now, and they don't want to miss a trillion. 
Even as Jensen has to deal with the pedestrian reporting process tomorrow night, he's busy honing his keynote for GCC 2024. The latest breakthrough is in accelerated computing, generative AI, and robotics. More than 300,000 people are expected to attend in person or virtually to hear AI leaders along with top companies forget this, every sector under the sun, because they're all touched by this technology that runs on NVIDIA's platform. That three-day extravaganza from March 18th to the 21st is so important that I want people to recognize that there indeed is a day after tomorrow's earnings. A raison d'etre to keep owning the stock of NVIDIA for the next month, even if it has a sharp fall tomorrow. Yet, just like Apple, another stock that I say you should own, not trade, there's widespread belief that NVIDIA could be vaporized momentarily. The whole edifice revealed is chimerical and Jensen nothing more than a tortured poet, without even as much as a department to lord over. It could be plumbled like Palo Alto stock right now. I say open your eyes, people. If you think that NVIDIA's quarter is one and done, you're also thinking that AI is one and done. You think the Eurus tour is over? Then how do you deal with Jensen's statement that, quote, generative AI has moved to center stage as governments, industries, and organizations everywhere look to harness its transformative capabilities, end quote. Bottom line, hey, maybe I'm still a believer, but I do know why. NVIDIA deserves its valuation if they take a whack at its tomorrow when they report. Remember. Fridays, another day. Tony in Florida. Tony. Hey, Jim, I just want to thank you for, uh, for everything you do, you and Jeff, because I'm a club member since day one, and thank I really you. enjoy everything you guys do. Ah, you're a great friend of the show and of the business and of the club. Thank you so much. How can I help? And I even met you down in Miami when you came down to Miami. I hope I was polite. Oh, you and Jeff were great. Oh, <laughs> All right. You never know. You know, a bad day. You catch me on a bad day. You know, like the Eagles lose. I wasn't played that day. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Right. That's seven it's days. Okay. Everybody has bad days. Um, what I wanted to uh, see um, with everything going on in the world, everything in the Red Sea with Israel and with um, Ukraine, I don't have any defensive stocks. And you have this in the bullpen for a while. RTX, do you think they're a good You know, I'll tell you why I've been worried about RTX, because I see plane companies, actually aerospace companies say, look, we uh, we're back order because of the RTX, because of the G, because of the geared fan problem, the turbo fan. In other words, they actually have it. They, too, have something that is wrong that they're making. And that's keeping people away and making me more concerned. But I hear you. It is coming back. All right. I think NVIDIA deserves evaluation like this. And if non-believers take a whack on its stock on Thursday morning, but I think the story is true, well, remember, Friday is another day. Oh, man, tonight, from inflation to drones and even advertising, there's a lot to discuss when it comes to the heft of Walmart. And I'm talking to CEO Doug McMillan exclusively off the company report. You won't want to miss this one. Then Robert returned a, a fairly robust quarter in last week, and I'm running through the numbers and sharing the red and green lights that I saw. And Palo Alto Networks, one of my favorite names in the cybersecurity cohort, is just getting trashed after the bell. I'm going to sit down and talk with the company CEO. So stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on X. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Mentions. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. 
Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to connect with candidates faster. Plus, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visible visibility at indeed.com slash mad money. Just go to indeed.com slash mad money right now and support this show by saying you heard about indeed on this podcast, indeed.com slash mad money terms and conditions apply. Need to hire. You need indeed. This morning, retail earnings season got rolling. And Walmart kicked things off in a style with tremendous quarter. The largest retailer in the world beat expectations on every line. The darn stock was already trading at an all-time high coming in. It tacked on another 3% today. Could have more room to run. Earlier today, we got a chance to speak with Doug McMillan, Walmart's bankable president and CEO. Take a look. Doug, welcome back to Mad Money. Thanks for having us back. All right, this is a very big day, Doug. This is a true blowout, and I want to get right to it. You had traffic up 4%, and the reason why that's important is because most people are having big numbers by raising price. That is not the case with Walmart. You know, Jim, we really had a good fourth quarter finishing off a strong year. Our associates are doing a great job, whether it's in stores or Sam's Clubs or around the world, including in our e-commerce fulfillment centers. And hats off to them for driving a really successful holiday season here in the U.S. and around the world. I can't help but note that in a world where we're very worried about inflation, you have held the line. And one of the reasons why I think your stores are packed is because you can save a lot of money going to Walmart right now. People are always looking for value. And so we want to offer that to them across our entire assortment, food, consumables, general merchandise, apparel, everything. And we also want to do it with private brands in addition to brands. And they both matter. And we've done a good job, I think, of keeping our prices in a, in a good range and trying to provide some relief from the inflation that our customers have been experiencing. Our general merchandise prices, things that are not food or consumable, are actually down versus a year ago and comparable to two years ago generally. And then on the food side, we're seeing some of our fresh food categories come down, um, but processed food, dry grocery and consumables still have a two-year stack of inflation that's problematic, like mid-double digits. But this year, compared to a year ago, prices are up uh, less than 1%. So I think we've, even in those categories that have been more stubborn, we've been fighting hard to keep our prices well, low. Well, you're holding a lot. You're doing the Fed's job. Now, you are doing some incredible technology here. The buy of Vizio seems brilliant to me because you should tell people how much money you're making in advertising and how this will augment that. Yeah, well, I think for the year we finished around $3.8 billion globally, up about 28% in our advertising business. As you know, when you grow your digital reach and you've got an e-commerce business that's scaling like ours is, and by the way, e-commerce finished the year at $100 billion in sales for the first time, which is exciting. As you grow that, including the marketplace, you get an opportunity to sell advertisements. 
And we can connect the dots for advertisers. You know, if they advertise with a digital ad, for example, and the customer transacts a week later in a store or club, we can connect that up for them and let them know that the ad really worked. That's the differentiating advantage that we've got. And with this purchase of Vizio, um, we are intending to be able to expand our opportunity to serve customers and help advertisers have an opportunity to connect even more dots. Now, I know you do have a deal with Roku. Is it more the merrier or should just put all the uh, uh, put all the chips on Vizio? More the merrier. We've got a relationship with lots of different people, and that'll continue to be the case. We want to sell what customers want to buy and provide access. So that's our plan. Speaking of relationships with others, one of the things that's so impressive is you have inventory. It seems like you've finally done it. You've you've done the holy grail of what I want a merchant to do, which is figure out inventory. I know that Apple is talking about how they're helping you on with the Vision Pro on shelves and figure out what should be on the shelf. How's that working? Yeah, we have a great relationship with Apple and with others, both digitally trying to make sure we're presenting their product well, but also in store. It is very much a collaboration. We want to make sure that customers have all the information they need to be able to buy what they want to buy, and especially when it's a higher price point. Okay, so a lot of people are making the fact that there's going to be some problems with GLP-1 and stores, uh, monthly spend on categories that have been impacted. I hear that, and I know there was some comment, maybe we can try to refute that or change that about whether it's hurting store uh, just in terms of, of sales. But you're a health and wellness company now. Can't you pivot and use this data to be able to say, look, we're going to devote more of our floor space to health and wellness because we see these categories going down? Health and wellness is really important. As you know, we've got a large pharmacy business, a large vision business. We're in the hearing business. Over-the-counter is important to us. Of course, all the things that go along with that, like beauty. Um, we're experimenting with healthcare clinics, so we definitely prioritize health and wellness. On GLP-1, nothing new to report today. When we look at it, we think it's just too early to tell how things are going to play out. But as you know, our food business is strong. But uh, any, uh, let's say, uh, degradation in snacks, pastries, ice cream uh, versus, say, seeing yogurt, fish, vegetable snacks doing better? Customers are buying all the above. Um, I think you pointed out not long ago that we've got a strong organic offer today. We have a very strong fresh food offer across categories. We're doing really well with the food business. Okay, I'm going to go there because I think there's some tremendous, tremendous lack of knowledge about Walmart. One of the points you made, both CES and here, the $100,000 and more demographic. People do not realize that is the new Walmart shopper. Jim, everybody's looking for value and everybody wants to save time. They're looking for convenience. So I think in our case, the fact that we can offer a store at a club when you want it, we can do curbside pickup, we can do delivery in various forms, that enables us to just be able to serve people however they want to be served. And for those that have more money and want convenience, we've now got the Walmart Plus membership. We've got all these ways to deliver, and our assortment just keeps getting better. We've made progress through our store remodels with our apparel offer and presentation, and that's just one example, I think, that might help us be able to retain people with more money as, as the economy comes and goes in terms of its strength. Now, uh, if let's say I want it by drone, can you get it to me? Yeah, great question. Uh, we announced at CES that we're going to be taking drones to Dallas-Fort Worth and cover about 75% of that huge market by the end of the year. Um, we've done over 20,000 drone deliveries already. We've been operating multiple delivery stations with different providers, and people love it. So I think it's just one more piece of the puzzle to help people save more time. I want to go over something you just mentioned, which is the funness, the fun of a store, uh, and also the AI. Now, you know, because I shop there with my daughter, I know you follow. 
follow us. But she happened to buy the combat boots. She bought the crochet top. She, with her friends, bought the Valentine's Day hearts uh, sweater, which was what you mentioned in the call, that people, that's what they're doing. Her friends, they're all going and looking at what each other's buying. This is new. Hey, Jim, you know most of my background is in merchandising. I love buying and selling merchandise, as do we all around here. And the items you mentioned are great examples. It should be fun to go into one of our stores and clubs and shop, and I think it is today. And the seasons help with that. I mean, it's we roll on from Valentine's to Easter. Before you know it, it'll be back to school and then holiday again. The store's always changing. And when you walk into a store, you can see color and you can experience things, smell and other things that make it really fun to go and check the stores out. And I think that's why our traffic's up. It's more than just utilitarian. It's also a, a fun experience. Oh, my God, it's incredible. I mean, you know, I'm used to Costco having the treasure of it. You guys have it. The other thing you seem to know, inference, you seem to know what I want. I walked in in December trying to figure out what to do Super Bowl? Bingo. You had this whole area of everything that we wanted, a giant area. Did you use inference and AI to figure out what to put there? Yeah, we we use a lot of technology to help us make those choices. And in the end, what we're trying to deliver is a shopping list. If you you did have time, everybody's busy and you and your family are busy, so you don't have time to really think through maybe the Super Bowl party. So when you walk into either our app or you walk into the store, it should be like we about read your mind. And you know you need soft drinks. You know you're going to need some chips and dip. You know you might want a new TV, but you know you're going to need quite a few of these items. And if we lay them out in the right way, it leads to more incremental purchases, more units in the basket. Oh, it's easy. It's fun. Now, I want to go back to something you said at the very beginning for my last question. You talked about the associates and how great they are. Now, you gave wage increases. A lot of people felt that was wrong. It obviously was, you know, they would hurt your gross margins. Obviously not true. Uh, but you also are giving the 40,000 people participating in the stock, they're going to get the split. They're going to get the dividend increase. This is major for your associates. It is. You know, we've had a, a long-standing situation where a lot of our associates are our shareholders. And that's what's happened here. It's exciting that we have 400,000 associates that participate in our share purchase plan, where the company pluses it up by 15% on the first first $1,800 a year. So you get a generated return from the company, even if the stock didn't move. Now, in this case, what we're trying to do is to help our associates feel like they can buy a whole share faster. It just feels better to be in a position where you can buy a whole share through payroll deduction. And we also gave equity to our store managers here in the U.S. for the first time, and people are really excited about that. We see a plan over the next few years that we're very excited about, and we're trying to send signals to our team that we want them to participate in the upside, have more than just a job, but build a career and build wealth for their family as they're doing it. Well, you're doing great things. I want to congratulate you on a true blowout, Doug, and just an amazing quarter. And thank you for holding the line on inflation. The country needs you. You bet. We'll keep doing it. Right, Thank that, you. Thank you. Let's start with Bill and President CEO of Walmart WMT. This was a blowout. This stock is not done going higher. And it's because of what this man and the associates are doing. Man, buddy, be back after the break. Coming up, Kramer checks under the hood. Reactions to Robin Hood's latest report next. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. 
See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Before we get too bogged down with this week's earnings reports, I need to talk about one of last week's bigger quarters. A week ago, Robinhood Markets, that's a disruptive online brokerage firm, reported a truly fantastic quarter that sent its stock rocketing 13% the next day. And it kept running, finishing the week up 21%. This comes on the heels of a huge run as the stock's now vaulted from under $8 in mid-November to just over $14 today. House of pleasure. But I got to tell you, you know, I actually have mixed feelings on this one. Robinhood's doing a lot better now, but the company has some long-standing problems that they really haven't done anything to fix. Or, or maybe they're just not concerned about them. So I can't tell whether this move is sustainable as it looks. That said, the quarter was very strong. There's no doubt about that. A big top and bottom line beat with 24% revenue growth, positive earnings per share. But Wall Street was looking for a small loss. This is only the second time since its IPO that Robinhood's posted a profitable quarter. And it's mostly thanks to aggressive cost cuts. These guys slashed their workforce by 7% last summer. And it's translating into much higher earnings. They're also seeing big growth from their higher tier Robinhood Gold subscription accounts. And they grew the customer base by 420,000 people to 23.4 million. That's a lot. Average revenue per user shot up by 23%. Also a lot. Beyond the numbers, co-founder and CEO Vlad Tenev was eager to talk about positive deposit trends, which have continued in the first quarter of this year. They're seeing big inflows, and it's coming from other brokerage houses. Better yet, on the conference call, we learned that Robinhood's January net deposits were $4 billion, with about a third of that coming from transfers from other brokers. That $4 billion haul in January was the highest monthly total since the first half of 2021. Hmm, when was that? How about at the height of the GameStop short squeeze mania? Management said it was seeing, and I'm going to quote here, continued strength, end quote, in early February, too. Nice preview there, huh? Robinhood's making a concerted effort to win these account transfers from rival firms, and it is paying off, especially with wealthier clients. So with all this legitimately good news, why the heck am I on the feds? Well, simple. I'm concerned about how the company makes its money and about what its users are investing in, or maybe I should say trading in. I've been so much skeptical of Robinhood ever since it came public two and a half years ago because precisely its users seem to be developing bad habits. Rather than investing in stocks like you and I do, they prefer to gamble on options or crypto. Not that there's anything wrong with using options or messing around with cryptocurrencies. Hey, listen, I, any way that's legal to make money, I get. But for the vast majority of home gamers, these are extremely high-risk propositions. I would not put these into my charitable trust. So therefore, it's risky for Robinhood to be so dependent on them. When you look at the breakdown of Robinhood's $200 million in transaction-based revenue last quarter, $121 million came from options trading, while another $43 million came from crypto trading. Combine that as 82% of the company's transaction-based revenue, whereas just $25 million or 12.5% comes from equity trading, which is sticky. Of course, some of that's because Robinhood makes much more money on options and crypto trades. But when you look at the raw trading vibes, the numbers are similar, and the trend's getting worse, not better. In 2021, when Robinhood came public, their equity trading volumes averaged just under $300 billion per quarter. Last year, their equity trading volumes averaged just $164 billion per quarter. It's almost been cut in half. Meanwhile, their option volume weighed in at 293 million contracts in 2021, and it was basically unchanged last year. Crypto volumes have fallen off drastically. 
but they picked up by an insane amount in the fourth quarter, up 88% versus the third quarter, not year over year, quarter over quarter. So how much should we care about the fact that Robinhood gets the vast bulk of its transaction-based revenue from options and crypto trading? Well, you can argue, frankly, that's pure gambling. Hold it. Gambling can be a pretty good business. Look at the amazing quarter we just got from DraftKings last Thursday night. Now, I don't think there's anything wrong with making money off options and crypto. But this level of concentration, to me, maybe not to others, but to me, represents a risk. Sure, I wish they'd offer their user base more education about how to handle this stuff. But the real problem is, is this side of the business can be very boom and then bust. When the market's doing great, you'll have tons of people buying call options or buying any margin. But if there's a downturn in the market, that business will evaporate. Same with crypto. Business is great now. Bitcoin's north of 50000 but it's inherently volatile. And if the price gets hammered, well, guess what? People lose their appetite for this stuff pretty quickly. For now, though, I'm sure Robinhood's user's base is thrilled. Which brings me to my second qualm. Lately, Robinhood's been less hostage to options in crypto trading because they're making much more money on their net interest revenue. Thanks to dramatically higher rates, they're making much more money off the money that is kept as deposits, regular deposits, not CDs. And that's why net interest revenue accounted for 50% of Robinhood's business last quarter, up from 12% back at the beginning of 2021. In short, Robinhood's magnificent earnings results, the surprise profit last quarter, mostly comes down to the fact that we've been in a rising interest rate environment. Unfortunately for them, interest rates are likely headed lower this year, something that I have told you I think it's a little bit unlikely, but I am alone on this issue. If conventional wisdom prevails, lower rates will erode the company's net interest revenue. That's what happens. Now, Robinhood could offset that by continuing to attract new deposits, and they've been doing a fantastic job of snatching that money from the rivals. Still, all else equal, as rates go lower, this company will once again become hostage to options and crypto trading, and those are much less reliable businesses. So sure, Robinhood reported an impressive quarter last week. No denying that. Not only is the company growing once again, it's now genuinely profitable, at least for the moment. And there are some legitimately good things happening strategically for the company. The deposit trends are very encouraging. I applaud Robinhood's success on all these fronts. But having said all that, when I dig into the numbers, there are still some things that give me pause about the business. Here's the bottom line. I worry that as the benefit of higher rates starts to fade or even reverse, Robinhood will once again be more dependent on its users making money on options and crypto trades, which doesn't feel like a viable long-term growth strategy, at least not from these exalted levels. Buying Robinhood right here, right now, will be like making a highly levered bet on stocks and crypto. So in the end, I can't endorse it. I can applaud the company's recent success. But I don't have enough confidence in the growth trajectory to pound the table on it. Worth watching uh, to see if its traders migrate to investor status. But you might have the kind of long-term story that I'd like very much from this scrappy outfit. But that has to happen first before I can give it the thumbs up. Let's take some calls. Let's go to Mary in New York. Mary. Hello. Hi, Mary. It's Jim. What's up? Um, what do you think Black is a buyer itself? Because Black has been going down the past couple of days. Well, I have to tell you, a lot of the fintechs, the financial technology stocks have been going down. But Block is a charm stock. There are just plenty of analysts who are just out there willing to pound the table anytime it's down. Very few stocks have that same reputation. Notice I didn't say the company, the stocks. It's love. Stick with it. I can applaud Robinhood's recent success, but in the end, I don't have enough confidence in the growth trajectory to endorse a buy. Much more mad money ahead, including my exclusive with Palo Alto Networks. What the heck is going on here? Cybersecurity is a powerful theme. I want to know what the cyber kingpin has to say about the stock getting hammered when I sit down with the CEO fresh off the earnings. Then we need to stop it with the guest the month, the Fed will cut game. I'm sharing how I really think you should be sizing up this market. Of course, all your calls rapid fire in tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. 
just happened that Palo Alto Network sent stock plummeting after hours trading. The best of breed cybersecurity outfit reported a solid set of results, but then gave surprisingly grim guidance. Palo Alto cut its full year revenue and billings forecast, giving a disciplining outlook for the current quarter on every line except for demand, which is said is strong. Let's check in with Nikesh Aurora, the chairman and CEO of Palo Alto Networks. He had a better read on the quarter. What comes next? Mr. Aurora, welcome back to Mad Money. Thank you very much, Jim. Nikesh, it's great that you're here because I think that there is, let's put it this way. Last time you were on, there was a tremendous emotional moment that everybody sold and it turned out to be wrong because they were thinking too short term. I'm wondering if that can't be the same here. You're taking your company instead of just selling piecemeal, you're going platformization. I've seen this happen to other companies. It hurts them short term and then their margins fly up longer term. Is there a problem with demand or is there just a consolidation platformization play that's going to make it so a year from now, Palo Alto Networks is going to be making a lot more money than we think? Well, Jim, I hope you're right. We should be making a lot more money from a year from now. I think, first of all, let me reiterate, there is no problem with demand. The attacks are increasing. AI is creating more attacks. You're beginning to see state actors out there in the public domain being sort of there's risks being attributed to them. So there is a tremendous amount of negative cyber activity going on, unfortunately, and we need to all be continue to be prepared for that. There is no problem from the demand perspective. If you look at our quarter, we had the best earnings beat this quarter in a long time. Our margins are 29%. We beat revenue, we're closing billings, and we had phenomenal profitability and phenomenal cash flow. So there's nothing wrong with the demand okay. function. We're forecasting that we want to take this somewhere else. And I think that's where the market's getting a little jittery. Yes, but at the same time, you use the word fatigue when it comes to getting more cybersecurity. Well, you know what? There are a lot of teams that are fatigued, but it doesn't matter. They still have to win. I would imagine that a fatigued team still has to spend because it only takes one real bad hit to have a Clorox. I mean, they would like to be fatigued. I don't want to be Clorox fatigued. You know what I mean? Well, let me clarify. Fatigue, as it relates to having to deal with multiple cybersecurity vendors, try and make them all come together, try and integrate them, try and respond to bad actors who are coming at you at a mile, you know, as fast as they can, while you're dealing with legacy infrastructure where you have to take time to put stuff together. I say it's time to stop doing that and it's time to start applying AI-generated models, dig them and deploy them so we can get you a faster response time, get you better total cost of ownership, get you better ROI from what we're offering. And that's the need for that consolidation and platformization. So it's not like people are not spending money. I think my cybersecurity budgets are still going to keep going up in five to 10 percent a year. But I think they want more for what they're spending. I'm scrapping the word fatigue because it's sending people to the exits. Now, let's talk about something. There's a FBI director, Christopher Wray, on Sunday. He's talking about basically a cyber war. OK, and he's making a point that infrastructure is in trouble. Obviously, the federal government, they can uh, the Chinese hacking everything. But I read that the federal government's not spending as it was in cybersecurity. Now, I, I mean, did they go to college to get stupid? I mean, what's the point of that? I think it's very important to parse what we read over the weekend. What we read over the weekend is that a lot of enterprises and public sector enterprises as well, where we believe there are bad actors who are camped out. I think that means all enterprises, all public sector utilities, all infrastructure, infrastructure components have to spend more money and get more current and get out, get rid of legacy vendors and go towards platformization. We think that's going to happen. In terms of the federal spending, which we alluded to, we had staffed up for a very large project, which didn't materialize. And that was a that was a miss for us in Q2. We were able to cover that by 
shipping a whole bunch of non-product backlogs, so we're fine. But we think that's not going to materialize for the rest of this year. All right, so let me say, Bill McDermott, ServiceNow, has come on. He said, listen, federal spending is gangbusters. It's AI spend. He's talking about doing cybersecurity. Is he the reason why Palo Alto is not getting its big federal orders? (laughs) Bill is a good friend and a great customer. I don't think he's doing cybersecurity as much as he's doing an amazing job in workflow management out there. But no, that's not the reason there's anything wrong with Palo Alto. Okay, now I want to be sure nothing's changed in terms of the companies that that, that are, again, I'm trying to avoid the word fatigue, that that are uh, that say that are confused about spending. Do they do they understand the SEC's rules about being hacked? Are they just saying, you know what, those two are too hard to afford right now? We'll put them on another shelf. Oh no, I think Jim, as I mentioned in our in our earnings call, there, the the amount of conversations that we're having with CIOs and CEOs is at an all time high. I think the awareness, the need for them to have a much more secure infrastructure, is at an all time high. I think they just want a more bang for their buck. They want to be more secure, faster, with deployed AI in their platform. That's what they want. Okay, so tomorrow people are going to come in and say, okay, the stock's down eighty dollars. Uh, but one of the things that Nikesh said on the call was that there will be a dip. A dip that you will see before there's an acceleration. Uh, you said, for instance, the federal government, you said the next quarter, the quarter after that may not be that good. Is this a dip or should I use the word abyss? <laughs> you know, I don't think, unless you're calling a technology abyss in the future, which I don't think you are, unless you're calling an AI abyss, there is no cybersecurity abyss. I think this is a reshaping of our demand curve so that we can grow faster in the longer term. We want to go ahead and platformize our customers. We want to be able to execute with them as they want right now so we can drive this business to a bigger number in the future years. Well, do you think that the others who are not sharing your platformization view are going to come after you in the interim and cut price, cut price, cut price and take business from you? Well, Jim, we have a lot of platforms to be able to amortize any execution risk takeaway. They will have one platform. So I don't think Anybody who wants to compete with us should be doing that. That would be a bad strategy for them. All right. So when we look back at, at what happened here, I'm wondering, was there a way to be able to say at the beginning of the year, look, be, be aware that we have to kind of change our view and become more holistic. There's just too many different pieces here because there is a sense that we just rolled back all of what's been so right with the stock of 2024. You rolled back every single dollar. Well, Jim, you know what? Sometimes you have to consolidate to go out and double from there. So I'm not worried about the stock price as much as I think. Let's go back to the basics. Our business is strong. Demand is strong. We're executing better than we've ever executed. We're leaders in 21 categories today. Five years ago, we're in one category. We have salespeople out there who are dealing with CIOs and CISOs every day who want to go ahead and get their cybersecurity platforms cleaned up as quickly as possible. That's what we're driving towards. That should drive our business to a much higher, much better number than where we are, than the world expected 12 months from now. So, I don't think there's anything that's letting up right now. Okay, so maybe I, you know, I had Shantan Narayan on this morning. I remember at one point he came on and he said, look, we are not doing, we're doing business piecemeal. We're going to pl- make giant platforms. Stock got you know, down 30%. And then it tripled. I mean, maybe, just maybe we're catching this down 20% before the triple. Or maybe I just think that you're such a good manager and a good company that I, too, am drinking something that I shouldn't. <laughs> Now, Jim, we're all committed here at Palazzo Networks as a management team. We think this is the way the industry needs to go. Five years ago, we embarked on a platformization approach versus best of breed. We proved the world. 
that we proved to the world that we can do that with cybersecurity where nobody believed it could happen. We've built an evergreen company. We think the biggest opportunity ahead of us is AI. We think that's going to create a whole new set of cyber vectors. And there's nobody better prepared than Palo Alto to deliver against that threat. I keep saying you know, AI is the first time that the people who are incumbents with large amounts of data have a strategic advantage. And by that metric, we have the largest amount of security data in the world. Okay, I am no longer fatigued, both by what you say and because I think we should exercise that from the transcript. Nikesh Aurora's chairman and CEO of Palo Alto Networks. You came on, good, bad. Thank you very much, Nikesh. And maybe I think better next time. Thank you. Thank you, Jim. All right. Uh, look, I'm going to have a full report uh, tonight for members of the club. And remember, we got a big meeting Saturday. We're going to talk about what we're going to do with the stock. Man Money's back in. It is time. So the lightning round comes back to our on this table. My boss is Fiona Clippany And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Ski Daddy, talking about the lightning round. Clippany Bites over with Ned. No, how Ned. Hello, five-star Professor Kramer. How are you, sir? I am doing well. How about you, Ned? I am doing very well, sir. Before I ask my question, I want to wish you a belated happy birthday, February 9th, uh, February 10th, my birthday, my twin brother's birthday, uh, February 11th. Incredible. You and your twin brother have the same birthday. Yes. (laughs) What a surprise. Yes. Uh, So... Uh, my question, I, I have a notebook, and I have written down your words of wisdom okay. over time, and I was reviewing that, and I noted that you had said that you should ne- never have more than, say, 3 or 4% of a single investment in your portfolio. True. And I, I believe that I have an exception to your wisdom there in MPLX. Oh, MPLX, I like it very much. I like the pipelines. I was saying just today to a couple colleagues, geez, these master limited partnership pipelines are very good. That is like a fixed income bond. I understand why you feel that. I still will not go more than 6% in that, uh, but uh, that's a very good situation. Hey, let's go to Chris in New Jersey. Chris. Hey, Jim. Such a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for taking my call, sir. Thank you. Thank you for calling, Chris. How could I help you? So listen, uh, semiconductor stock uh, made a good move early on in the year. The last two weeks, not so much. I'm thinking it's going to be a beneficiary of the uh, CHIPS Act, but uh, it, it kind of stayed stagnant for a couple of weeks now, talking about Taiwan semiconductor. All right, we're going to let these stocks come in a little here. We're seeing what's happening. We've seen that they're rolling over. We're just going to let them come down. And when they come down, we're going to get great prices. We cannot be so eager to buy first dip. Let's go to Robert in New York. Robert. Hey, Jim. Thank you for taking my call. Of course. I bought CLS in October at 21. It's now at 37. Well, you know what you're going to do there? You're going to ring the register. You're literally going to sell one third of it because that's it. Solisca is a very dicey situation and because it's contract manufacturing. And that, ladies and gentlemen, conclusion of the lightning round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by Charles Schwab. Coming up, what signal is the retail cohort sending the Fed? Why Kramer wants the guessing games to end. Next. All right, we got to stop spending so much time trying to guess which month the Fed will cut rates. 
because it's pointless right now. If you've been paying attention to this earnings season, you know the truth. Few prices are coming down and most are going higher. Wages are still rising. Minimum wage boosts causing some real ripples across the country, making the Fed shop much harder. Inflation still stalks us. There are sectors of the economy where I can say that inflation is still playing havoc with the numbers, causing us all to be stunned by higher prices. The whole restaurant business is still experiencing wage gains. They simply aren't as big as they were during the pandemic, although that's hardly reassuring tin pole, given how large an industry dining out is. Too many job vacancies, not enough workers. That's the story across so many segments of this economy and is especially acute in the restaurant business. Some wages are finally going up, and it's having a national impact. Retail's become a huge booster of wages. Both Home Depot and Walmart this morning talked about their big wage increases. Walmart's not only raising the average going rate for associates to 18 from 17 and change, but perhaps even more important, store managers' base salaries are going from 117 to 128000 And if they hit their targets, they can get up to 200% of their base salary as a bonus. Home Depot trumpets a $1 billion investment in increased annual compensation. These are big employers, and their actions matter. At the same time, while Walmart's able to hold the line on inflation for many product categories like food, Home Depot's having a tougher time. They talked about prices leveling out, but at a higher rate. Still, the Fed doesn't want to see these big wage gains, and if it wants to declare the war on inflation won or even modestly successful, it, it, it can't take, it can't cut, it just can't cut. Most important for inflation, Home Depot says the housing prices have not come in. They're still up 46% since 2014, 2019, 46%. That's just, that's five years ago. 46%. That's totally unacceptable from the perspective of the Federal Reserve. It should be f- unacceptable for you. It's unacceptable for me. Oh, and just in case you think the Fed can focus on layoffs as a source of solace, we just haven't seen the kind of mass bankruptcies that you'd expect after such an aggressive series of rate hikes. The tech layoffs, oh, please. There are so many executives like Mark Chainsaw Zuckerberg, but uh, only so many years of efficiency like he delivered at Meta Platforms. Which brings me back to the idea that we're desperately in need of rate cuts that I hear so many say. To me, this earnings season says the opposite. It says maybe the Fed actually made a mistake when they said risk re balance between inflation and unemployment. They perhaps got ahead of themselves when they signaled multiple rate cuts coming this year. What industry needs rate cuts? Tell me. Uh, certainly not housing. That'll just make the cost of housing even higher. Services? We're just going to see uh, higher wages. Autos? Right now, we have a chance to create an inventory bulge that could p- cause prices to go down if interest rates stay high, but we don't have it. Food? Well, it's only in some aisles of Walmart. Unfortunately, Costco is doing its best to lower costs. But we all know the supermarket experience is as painful as it gets. Travel and leisure? It just won't stop going higher. Healthcare? Still as rampant as ever. I say stop the guessing. Let's see if we get any rate cuts in 2024. I won't be surprised if we don't. We don't need any. I know that. Right now, though, the Fed has to cool any behind-the-scenes rhetoric that cuts are coming and wait for a couple of months with unemployment above 4% before taking any action. Otherwise... If you're waiting to buy stocks for when rates are cut, I got some bad news for you. The biggest gains will most likely be behind you. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise you to find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you tomorrow. Last call starts now. All opinions expressed by Jim Cramer on this podcast are solely Cramer's opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, or their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by Cramer on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Jim Cramer as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. Cramer's opinions are based upon information he considers reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warn its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Mad Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Mad Money Disclaimer. 
CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.